Let Him Go Barefoot is a podcast that dives into all things parenting and education through the lens of mindful awareness. Conversations aim to bring forward patterns, beliefs, and attitudes that shape our expectations and ideas about what it means to raise healthy children. With the blend of science, ancient wisdom, and intuition, we will explore ways to support, nurture, and connect with our growing children while also nurturing and expanding ourselves. I am grateful you are here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 17 of the Let Him Go Barefoot podcast. My guest today is Julie Walter, also known as Family Yields on Instagram. I invited Julie on to talk about creating intentional community and to share with us the purpose of the forest and farm school she created and runs with her husband on their 50-acre farm in Canada. Community is something we all need, and yet many of us struggle with finding a community or keeping one. And when you choose to homeschool, sometimes you just have to go out and create one that meets the needs of your kids and your family. In this episode, we talk about things to consider when being in community, including the need for like-mindedness around a purpose, but also the power of diversity of ideas and perspectives. We discuss Julie's experiences as a teacher for 16 years, why she chose to homeschool, social emotional learning and why it is important, the need for buy-in when kids are learning new things, the global competencies she is aiming to help children develop, how the principles of permaculture permeate through her life, and so much more. There's also a story that she shares which illustrates the power of curiosity and interest that you don't want to miss. Julie is insightful, thoughtful, and I love how she's showing up with intention and purpose. I think you will too. Enjoy the episode. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Missy. Uh, My name is Julie Walter. And on Instagram and kind of all my social media platforms, I am online as Family Yields. Um, I am a mother of three children. I have two boys and a girl. So currently their ages are 12, 10, and 8. And uh, I homeschool my kids, and I always have. Um, But to kind of juxtapose that, I also am a school teacher. I taught in the public school system for 16 years. Um, teaching everything from kindergarten to grade 10, um, being a homeroom teacher, um, doing sort of support roles like drama, art, um, sort of the rotary subjects. I've taught tech. Um, I've worked at a specialized school for kids who have um, very severe learning disabilities. I've been a a special ed support teacher. So um, some people refer to that as a learning support teacher. Uh, I also uh, had a role as a gifted educator. Um, That was my final role uh, when I was at the public school board. So recently I have decided to leave the public school board um, in an effort to pursue some things that are important to me. Um, And also because some of the things that were happening in the schools uh, were just very difficult for me. Um, So I spent a lot of time trying to be an advocate for change from within the system. Um, And it turned out to be a very exhausting form of activism, uh, trying to speak up for children's rights uh, and the things that were happening um, that I wasn't okay with in the school system. So I've decided to divest from that, uh, feeling like it was taking too much of my energy. Um, And now I'm focusing on running our own program uh, on my 50 acre farm. We live in southwestern Ontario, Canada. And uh, we run 
it's kind of a hybrid program, uh, but I would describe it as a farm and forest school on our land here. That sounds amazing. Uh, just 50 acres. It feels expansive and so many opportunities. And I imagine, well, I guess I'm assuming, but were your kids the inspiration for that? Or was it a combination of the work you were doing and seeing and then realizing what children needed and how they operate best? Well, it was kind of a combination. I would say it started in the early days with my kids as seeing um, how needs were not being met in the school system. And that's why we decided to homeschool our children. There were many, many reasons that led to that decision. But, you know, with my oldest being 12 now, that decision feels like it was made quite a while ago. Um, the precipitating events for me leaving, um, well, there were a couple. Um, there were some big changes that happened to my role. And um, I wasn't happy with how the school board was treating the teachers and the students during the pandemic. Um, and I wasn't happy with the way the education was being done from home. And there were like a whole lot of factors, kind of a perfect storm, if you will. So at the same time as all this was falling apart, um, you know, where it kind of just reached the tipping point where it's like, I can't turn a blind eye to this anymore and, you know, feel like I'm doing more good than harm. Um, and then at the same time, I was noticing my own children um, struggling a little bit because all of our social networks had been taken away. So we were part of a co-op that shut down. Um, and the co-op that we were part of, although it was really good and we really enjoyed it, it wasn't that frequent. And I found that my children really weren't making sort of deep relationships with the people that were at the co-op. Like we'd see them, you know, a couple times a month and they'd play games together or whatever, but it never really bridged over into, hey, let's hang out, right? Like, let's get together outside of co-op time. The families didn't live too close to where we were. Um, and it was a mishmash of all types of different values and things that people were coming with, which was amazing for exposure and um, just being able to have conversations with people who have different viewpoints. Um, but the difficulty there was not everything kind of translated into those deep relationships that I was really hoping for for my kids. Um, and they were starting to feel it like they were pretty lonely during the pandemic, not having anywhere you know to go or things to engage with other kids. And so my husband and I said, well, why don't we just build the thing that we want for our kids? I love that. I love that. And you know, that touches on something that I have experienced over and over again in our homeschool experience is that if you build it, they will come. That's right. And, you know, if you find a need, chances are there's other families who feel the exact same way. So this is just a testament to just do it, you know, just mm -hmm. try it out. It, you don't have to make any long term commitments. You don't have to make any promises, but you can just go for it and see what happens. So you're saying then that you started the forest school in the last couple of years. When, when yes. did you? OK. Yeah. So we actually didn't start it until last year and we started in November. Uh, November 1st was our first day. Um, and it was just, it just was when we could get it together because we didn't have, <laughs> we didn't have a place for kids to go to the washroom outside. Um, so for safety, because at that time there were still a lot of protocols in place and, and whatnot. So we wanted it to be an outdoor program. We're like, let's just get together outside where people will feel safer, you know, with various things going on. Um, so we needed an outdoor space. So we had to clear out one of our workshops and we had to build an outhouse. So okay. that's why it started in November. Um, and we had 
one family who was in from the start, they were actually amazing. And part of the reason why we started it, because they're like, why don't we just do this? And we're like, yeah, why don't we just do this? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had another family who had asked me actually previously to teach their kids um, in sort of a one room schoolhouse situation. But at that time, it just didn't make sense for us because I thought, well, how can I go away from my own children who I'm homeschooling right. and go teach at somebody else's house, their group of kids? Like, so I couldn't reconcile it. And so when we decided to host it here, that kind of solved that problem. So that family was on board. And then we've grown by a couple more families since. Okay. So can you explain to us then what is what happens during your your forest school and sort of what is your overall mission and then you know kind of what does it look like day to day sure our overall mission is very clear uh, we really want to build strong community and allow children the opportunity to learn through process and really work on skills uh, social emotional skills interpersonal skills and also um skills of accountability, right? And like, how do we go out in the world and show up for things that are difficult? Mm -hmm. Um, So really, the root of it is, you know, collaboration, um, creativity, um, all those things, I refer to them as global competencies, right? The skills that you can apply in any situation that are going to help you across the board. Okay, yeah. So Yeah, what a day looks like for us, um, really depends on the day we do have a structure. Um, because I like to operate within a container and then we allow um, it to be child led within that. So we always start our day with a opening circle time where the kids can connect and come to the table with what they are uh, feeling that morning, right? Check mm-hmm. in with yourself. How are you showing up? And then it also allows us to kind of take the temperature of the group. Some mornings, everybody is ready to go, super excited. Other mornings, sometimes kids have had a bad night's sleep or they're tired. And so it allows us to adjust our day and to make appropriate accommodations for the emotional stuff that we're coming with in the morning. Oh, that's so fabulous. You know, that's something that has been an area that really impacted me as a teacher in the classroom. I worked at a special um, and with kids with special needs in the public school. And then I worked for a private school that is all about the l- kids diagnosed with learning disabilities and ADHD. And even though the private school, which was smaller and much more family oriented, it felt like a large family really, because people there were, were so dedicated to the job that they had. But what consistently became obvious to me over all the years I was in the classroom was just that we expect kids to leave their emotional world behind and come into a building and start learning. And it's as if we think that they're two separate things happening in a child that they can just cut one off and start the other one and cut the other one off and and then focus on, you know, now they can focus on their emotions. So the fact that you create space for that and honor it is really powerful. Have you noticed it being, um, have you noticed any particular changes maybe in your own children or even the kids who come because you have been more focused on that? Or do you think it's the people who are there were already doing that? I think the second actually, um, which is that the families who are coming to our school are already invested in this and already saw exactly what you're saying, right? The Mm -hmm. huge disconnect in schools between our humanness, right? Like our humanity as social, emotional beings separated from our learning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I put learning in air quotes there because it's, you know, social, emotional learning is learning and 
I sometimes really believe that it's the more important piece of the learning because yeah. if we can get if we can get a hold of that piece of ourselves and have a deep understanding of ourselves on that emotional level, then we can know how to proceed in order to bring in information and knowledge, right? Yeah. But if we're unstable in our emotional selves, then how can we show up effectively to learn knowledge and facts and you know, apply what we know? Absolutely. Right? So it, it's sort of a hierarchy, uh, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like you've got to have yourself fed and slept and drink, you know, had something to drink, but you also need to feel safety. And if you don't mm -hmm. feel safe, then you can't learn or your learning is severely impaired, right? Absolutely. I, I'm sure you saw this over and over again in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. And And also how unfortunate it was that there was not time to really adequately provide for those individual children who had such an overwhelming experience. You know, thinking back to kids in kindergarten, <clears throat> excuse me, who were showing severe signs of nervousness and just sort of a dysregulation of their nervous system at the time, this is, you know, I'm talking in like the 1990s, you know, long time ago, um, where I had gone through a program for kids with special needs, and yet that was not part of my training, was to think about the emotional dysregulation that can happen in children. I mean, sure, we talked about it, and I understood it in psychology, but when it came to application of classroom, quote, management, it wasn't really about that. It was more behavior. So it was all symptomatic. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was all symptomatic. It was all about here's a symptom, like let's smack at the symptom. Same thing that I feel like happens in our medical establishment, right? That there's this idea that if a, if a being is presenting with something, then the symptom is what we have to address, not the underlying root cause. I 100% agree. I, I remember having this uh, manual um, that was all kinds of behaviors mm -hmm. and treatments for them, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it was, you know, three inches thick. And instead of taking the time and allowing the space to really uncover what's going on for that child and to make some foundational changes to their system, because, you know, school is one piece of their system instead, because that's too difficult, right? It's too difficult mm -hmm. to work in community or to um, join heads with the people who are teaching the child, the people who are parenting the child and anybody else who's part of that system you know, may it be the medical community, et cetera. It's too hard to bring all those individuals together. And so the problem is we end up with this fractured, individualized approach. And then the child ends up feeling that fracture, mm -hmm. right? They can't find their footing. It's like, ah, oh, this is too difficult for me to try to figure my own way through this. And they're not getting the adequate support that they need, you know, despite Gosh, all the best efforts from all these yeah. various places. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like, um, you know, in the medical establishment where we don't think about dental health as being part of the overall health of the person. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we have a separate system for dental health and we have a separate system for mental health and we have a separate system for the body functions. The same thing with the academic side and the schooling of children is that we think that they're that we, we kind of see a child as like disembodied in a way it's like come into this building and now we will focus only on what your mind can do and compute and the rest we will have to deal with some other way or your parents will have to deal with mm -hmm. but here you come and you have your act together and you listen and you follow directions so 
that. Yeah. And there's also a very small margin of ways that you can show up in that environment and be successful. Right. Right. You must sit in your desk. You must pay attention. You must be looking at the speaker. You must do these assigned tasks. And most of them are written. So for any Mm -hmm. child who's having difficulty or struggling with written language, that's going to be extra hard. Right. So it's like we created this um, this way in which kids can be successful. And if you fall outside of that margin of success, then there's a problem with you. Mm -hmm. Right. Instead of saying, well, hold on a minute let's question the system or let's question the fact that we're separating our emotional selves from the academic learning that's happening in classrooms, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And look at the environment, right? It's a, mm-hmm. Is the soil, is the soil not well? Because maybe that's the problem. You yeah. need to dig that part up, right? Yeah. So with your experience in the classroom, would you, so can you just kind of walk us through maybe some particular experiences that kind of got you to where you are. You you said you were you were teaching for 16 years, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So and, and did you stop teaching before your kids were born or No, after? I actually just formally quit last year. I That's what gonna... I thought you said, but I wasn't I was like I wasn't sure. I was like maybe she yeah. Okay. So yeah, which is perplexing, form- right? It's like how do you teach in the school and homeschool your kids? Um <laughs> but I was part time for a number of those years. Uh, my husband is immensely supportive. Um, also, we have a very flexible idea idea of what homeschooling looks like, right? We mm-hmm. fall more toward the unschooling side um, right. where we allow our children to take the lead. And so um, there wasn't a lot of formal instruction or book work, although we do do a little bit. Um, but there were a couple of pivotal moments in my career where I just shook my head and I was like, oh man, this is, this is to be noted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was when my oldest was just three. So he was still, um, too young to go to school. Um, and this was one of the pivotal reasons we decided to homeschool. So I was teaching grade six at the time. And in Ontario, uh, the grade six curriculum covers space. So the study of the planets and uh, space exploration. Um, And my son at the time was very interested in space. And so at the same time, I was doing space at home and space in the classroom. And so I was coming across amazing resources that I was choosing for my son, videos, uh, really rich texts, um, websites, right, where they're sending pictures back from space, all this really great content. And I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. I'll take this into the classroom. I'll show Mm -hmm. my grade six kids. So um, grade six in Ontario, those kids are like 12. Um, Okay, so we're talking about a spread of nine years. So what was happening in the classroom is the kids didn't care you know, I'm showing them all this rich content and they were just like, uh, what do I have to know for the test? Right. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what I need to know. So it was all directed at these outcomes of like, well, I don't really care about the content. I just want to get through this and get the mark on my report card because oh. I don't really care about space. Like, why do I have to know about Jupiter? And at home, oh, my three-year-old couldn't get enough. Like I bring yeah. home stuff and he'd, he'd want more and he'd want more. And he, you know, he's reading books because my son was an early reader. Um, And he was reading books about exoplanets and learning them and telling me about stuff. And he'd have new facts to tell me every day when I got home from work, contrasted with these kids who I couldn't even light up with the very same materials, which Mm -hmm. I was excited about, right? Like even as an adult, knowing some about space, like I didn't retain everything that I learned in school. And that's the other thing, right? Like, so these grade six kids were not retaining things. I would tell them, teach them, show them this really great content. 
and they didn't care and therefore they didn't carry it. They didn't pick it Mm -hmm. up. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. like you can throw as much information at kids as you want, but unless they're interested in that and they have a use for it, they're not going to pick it up. Yeah. The power of buy-in, right? Mm -hmm. It it just proves that point over and over and over again. If a child is ready to learn something and they're interested and they're engaged, you can't stop it. I mean, you're talking about your three-year-old, you know, like you said, such a huge age difference, but because your three-year-old was so invested, just, you couldn't give him enough. And he was, you know, just eating it up. And then the kids in, in the school setting, because for so many years they're being taught that these are the things you have to do because we're telling you to, then they just become, you know, apathetic. Yeah. And it was more, more about being told what to do. And then in addition, you know, some of those kids legitimately maybe don't have an interest in space Mm -hmm. and maybe they Mm -hmm. don't need to know that, you know, if I had to, if I had to name all the planets in order, I don't know that I could do it effectively. I would probably make an error or two. Thank goodness nobody's Mm -hmm. testing me. Right. So the the things that we do to children in schools, you know, if you think of applying that to an adult, right, just go to an office Mm -hmm. building and slide a test across each person's desk. Be like, okay, you're getting tested on space today. See what you recall from your grade six space curriculum. Yeah. Right. It's like we don't do that to people um, because it's not actually effective. That's not actually why we learn things. Right. So Mm -hmm. going back to that question of why are we learning and how are we engaging with the world? Uh, Because those things matter more than checking off some boxes on a curriculum document, right? Yes, for sure. It makes me think of the uh, show that was popular here for a while, a while back called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Mm -hmm. And of course, everybody laughs about it. It's like, oh, ha ha, you know, these adults can't answer the questions that the fifth graders can answer. And to me, it just proved the point again about the ineffectiveness of this idea that you have to learn certain information in a grade. And then now here you are at age 40, 50, whatever the adult is, and they don't know it, yet they're acting as if the fifth grader is smarter. And I'm like, it's all about that context. It's all about what you're involved in in the moment. This, we, we can't keep pretending that this curriculum that we're giving to kids from kindergarten through 12th grade is the absolute way that we're supposed to be learning and living and interacting with the world. Mm-hmm. So for me, the, the, the show just, <laughs> just reinforced what I thought was going on in the school setting. I was like, see, the adults don't retain it. So why are we forcing our children to do it? Yeah. Um, and how many so, people are stepping back to ask that question, right? They're just enjoying yeah. this as entertainment and laughing at the silly adults instead of, again, going back to question, okay, well, what does that mean about our system here? Like, mm-hmm. Why are we doing this? And why are we continuing to participate in this in the way that we are? Yeah, yeah. And I do know that, you know, some people do it just because they have to, you know, it's a survival situation. And, and I, I get that completely. And I think what you touched on earlier is something that I experienced as well as you, you, you saw the problems, you really wanted to make a difference, but you can't change it from within. It's entire. And I, I remember writing something years ago, you know, when the banks, there was a whole thing in the U.S. with the banks are too big to fail and the company's too big to fail. And I thought about the school system. I'm like, the same idea is kind of applied to the school system. It's too big to fail. So they're going to continue to pump money, resources, um, and, and, and belief that it is necessary the way it is. We just need to bolster it more, right? More money, more resources, more time, um, more schools. And 
they're still not looking at the root cause, which is what I'm all about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's go to the roots. You know, we need to see what is happening under here because we're building, we continue to build on something that's not healthy and it's going to continue to just crumble in different ways. So you, you mentioned the thing about community and, um, and I want to really focus on that today because I believe that we are seeing the problems that we're seeing in our society because of the breakdown of community. And by that, I mean our smaller, tighter knit communities with extended family, extended friends who we can depend on, we can trust, who have our backs, who have our best interests at heart always. And, um, and, and yet we're missing that so much. And you, you mentioned the word fractured earlier about children. And I believe that's the case societally. We're just so fractured. Here we are with an internet and access to people globally, yet we're so alone and we're having all these issues. So how does, how does community work for you? And what is your, what is your belief about community? Well, our belief about community is pretty strong, actually. Um, And this is something that we have been working on as a family for several years. And the reason why is because um, the way in which we live our life is very different than the way most people do. So Mm -hmm. we live on a permaculture farm. Um, I would call it a homestead, but that word has uh, connotations that I don't really like, Um, where we try to grow as much of our own food on property as possible. Uh, we try to buy used things as much as possible um, and just really trying to reduce our environmental impact. So I also eat a very different diet than most people uh, because I don't deal well with a lot of food that is uh, mainstream produced. So mm-hmm. I need it to be as clean as possible, which is actually why we started growing a lot of our own. Um, and so it's very difficult to integrate into a society that just views those things as not worth the time or investment. Mm, So for us, it became very important to create a community of like-minded people who would understand what it was that we were doing, why we would put so much effort towards this when you can just go to the store and buy the thing, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, why would, why would you spend months of your life growing tomatoes to make salsa, you know, when you can just go buy a jar for $3? right? It doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Um, And so for us, we um, started growing our community by getting involved with things that were important to us, right? Causes that were important to us, um, local groups of people who were also working in similar um, areas and interested in similar things um, so that you don't feel so weird, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) you don't want to be the weird ones always. Like, it's really hard to show up that way. Um, over and over and over again, um, and basically ostracize yourself from a lot of communities and a lot of um, mainstream thinking, right? So mm-hmm. not only are we living on this farm and doing all this work, but we also homeschool our kids. And, you know, so there was just like thing after thing after thing that kind of made us different. And it really is part of our humanness to need and value um, being with other like-minded people or people Mm -hmm. who are going to support you. That is naturally part of our social being. And if we deny that, or if we try to leave it at the door, as is requested in the classroom, um, your mental health suffers. Yeah. And in order to be able to show up consistently and authentically for your values, you need that support, whether that be a partner or family members or a cultivated family, right? So people in your community who have... um, 
similar values to you and things that they're pursuing that they just get it, right? You can just talk to these people and they just understand who you are on a on a deep level. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's so vital. Yeah. So vital. Yeah, just that idea of feeling seen, right? Um, which to go back to our forest school model, that's why we start the day with that circle. Is like, I want those children to show up at our farm in the morning and really feel seen with all of it, right? It's all okay. We're going to yes. accept you no matter what, right? If you come and you're crying in morning circle, then we've got your back. Gosh, that's so valuable. So valuable because it, it is, you know, and I, I just had a conversation recently about friendships and friends and how many kids, how many friends do kids really need? It's a topic that I've been exploring recently. And I feel like it's a piece that's missing in the parenting and education conversations mm. because there's so much a focus on friends and friendships. And if kids aren't playing with other kids, is something wrong with them? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, again, it's that pulling that thread, right? You pull one, you have a question about one, and then it just kind of just like domino effect into all these other different areas. And what, what has pretty much shaken out. And, and some of this has to do with the research I've done and the reading and the, and the um, books that I've read is that, you know, we children, children cannot actually be friends with other kids. And by that, I mean, they are not cognitively capable of supporting another human being in the way that they need to be supported like a parent can yep. or like an adult who's, who's conscious and aware and a healthy adult can. So really we've pushed children into this idea that they need other kids when in fact, what we're doing a lot of times is we're doing it because we need it. We need the time. We need the space. We need the break. Yep. Um, and so this peer culture and peer orientation has popped up significantly over the last 50 plus years. And to much, to much, a uh, to a lot, to a lot of problems. You know, we, we've seen a lot of problems arise because of it. Well, you know, when you started talking about the community, I, I had to pull up a quote that I found in um, some of the work of Dr. Gabor Mate, which I think you're familiar with him and his work. And this was something from one of his books uh, a long time ago. And, you know, it was one of those quotes that I, I, I read when I was waiting on my son one day, he was in an activity and I was waiting to pick him up. And I read it and I, and I made a post for it on Instagram and Facebook. And it was probably the most viral post I've ever made. And I was shocked because, you know, you, you throw it out there thinking, eh, people, some people take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. But it really resonated with people. And here's the quote. Children spend less time around nurturing adults than ever before during the course of human evolution. The nexus previously based in extended family, village, community, and neighborhood have been replaced by institutions such as daycare and school where children are more oriented to their peers than to reliable parents or parent substitutes. 100%. And I, <laughs> and I, and I, I think that it's so powerful. Yeah. And I do believe that many people feel it. Yeah. There's, they know it. There's something in their gut that says what we're doing feels unnatural, but it's so normal. Yeah. It's normalized. We right? got to, we got to support it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think the difficulty is that most of our schooling models are very much peer orientated. Mm -hmm. Um, when we talked about, you know, leave your social emotional self at the door, come in and you're doing academic learning. When is that social emotional learning happening? Right. The kids are, left to their own devices at recess time and lunch times. Mm. And so mm. who is doing the teaching, 
Well, guess what? It's the other students, right? Because they're having to to regulate themselves. And, you know, so you have one, one teacher out on yard duty supervising 300 students. Well, you can imagine the amount of problem solving and I shall in- inject the word ineffective problem solving <laughs> yeah. that is happening peer to peer on the yard because they cannot have that interface with that adult, mm-hmm. right? They cannot mm-hmm. have that modeling, you know, and the yeah. modeling they are getting is shut down the emotions, focus on what matters. We're here to learn. We're not here to deal with this, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, parents or not parents, well, parents too, parents and um. And teachers have been, well, figure it out, figure it out. I'm like, how are children supposed to figure it out when they haven't even learned how to do it? That's right. And so I remember when I was my first, one of my first assignments in a school, um, the children at lunchtime, I would go out on the field and throw frisbee with kids or ball or whatever the case may be. And the teachers were laughing at me. They were like, what are you doing out there? I'm like, they're kids are fun. You know, I mean, they, they want to, and I cannot tell you how many times the kids would flock to me because it was like, oh my gosh, an adult's out here. Such a strange experience. Mm-hmm. She actually wants to do stuff and, you know, have fun with us and play. And, and I knew in, in my gut that there was something about that that needed to take place at this whole separation of adults over here now standing and talking and observing the kids, but, but are they really observing the kids? It's their break time essentially. Mm-hmm. And then the children out interacting with one another and, um, you know, I, I remember thinking, uh, there's this, there's playground politics happening out here. You know, there's that hierarchy being created. There's a lot taking place on this playground that the adults aren't even aware of. And they bring that back into the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so how is it that you expect your kids to be really focused on the material when 10 minutes ago on the playground, something pretty intense went down? So now somebody's nervous system is really dysregulated or they're concerned or they're fearful. and and, and it's just going to continue to keep going until somebody is able to intervene effectively or if they take it home and the parents try to do something about it, but they can't because they're not involved in the school. So it's like this, these separate entities operating and they need to be conjoined and they need to be collaborative. And so I love that your community that you're building is collaborative. Like you were saying, I mean, it's a parental involvement. So when you all created the plan and and pulled this together how how are the parents involved at this point uh the parents are not present during the day so we take the the children during the day um and we only meet three days a week so we're kind of a homeschooling enrichment program if you will um because we don't claim to do the full education of the child um Mm -hmm. we're providing a group setting and a natural setting um for four school experiences um as well as the community Okay. So um, parents are involved um, by basically seeing and witnessing what happens during the day. So I take little video snippets and I post it to this online platform. And so the parents have a pretty good idea of what went down during the day. Um, communication is very transparent. Um, parents are allowed to contact us at any time, right? It's more of um rather than a teacher relationship that's kind of power over, right? It was like, I'm in charge of the class. Please don't tell me how to do my job. Mm-hmm. It's more collaborative in terms of, you know, if a child comes home and they're speaking to the parent about something that happened during the day, we encourage parents to come back and talk to us about it or to connect over it. Because if a child is going home with that baggage, it means something was left unresolved from the day. Yeah. Um, at pickup time, we connect with each family. 
uh, we tell them kind of how the day was, right? Here are some highlights. Here are some things you might want to know. You know, like somebody took a tumble today and they got a scraped knee or there was a disagreement between these two children. This is how we uh, attempted a repair during the day. If there's more, please let us know um, because we don't want to put those threads down, right? Because that is um, when we don't deal with those things, those individual little um conflicts. Mm-hmm. It erodes the community. Oh, yeah, for sure. And just listening to what you were saying a few minutes ago about the school system, it's like, you want to know why we're ending up in an individualistic society where people don't know how to show up for each other? Well, it's because the community has been eroded and eroded and eroded every day, mm-hmm. every recess where there's those things that are left untended, right? Mm-hmm. Every time a kid goes home and there's nothing, no retribution, nothing that can happen, um, as a, as a result of things that didn't feel right to them, right? So again yeah. and again, they're tr- treated like, oh, well, your emotional self um, doesn't need to be heard, right? Mm-hmm. This is not of value. And so um, what's interesting is talking about play, oh, right? Yeah. Like that is how we connect with our creativity. And when you look at schools, it's like, wow, didn't that pound it out of us, right? Mm. 13 years of training of how not to play. Gosh, I know. Right. And so when you show up in that space willing to play, the other adults are like, well, that's not how you're supposed to show up. This is what your role is supposed to look like. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're supposed to be, you know, policing these kids, not engaging mm-hmm. with them, not meeting them at their level. Um, and so when we do that, right, if you look at historical communities, right, communities of the past that were very successful and some which still exist today that are very successful, you have intergenerational integration. Mm-hmm. You have kids playing with elderly folks, right? You have everybody involved in all strata of the community because there isn't something necessarily called childhood, right? It isn't separated as this thing where it's like, oh, well, you don't know enough, right? You're less than. Um, They're involved and they're included and their pace is honored and their emotional outbursts are honored because it's just a whole different way of thinking about it. And as soon as we create that fracture of, okay, your child, right? This is childhood. Therefore, you need to be policed. You need to be taught how to become an adult as if the yeah. adult is superior, right? Or like reaching this adulthood is the ultimate goal of your schooling or the ultimate goal of being a kid, right? Is to grow up and become adult. Meanwhile, take a step back and look at the adults, right? Who don't know how to play anymore. We don't know how to engage with our creativity. We don't know how to be messy. We don't know how to just let loose and have fun and be vulnerable in that space. And like, what a loss, I know. what a loss, right? Mm-hmm. So for my husband and I, what that's one thing we love about doing our school is we get to be there with the kids and play with them. Yeah. You know, we play pretend games where we're tigers and we, you know, <laughs> slide on ice and, you know, jump in leaves. Like it's, it's a really quite a gift actually as an adult to remember and to be part of that process with children. Gosh, that sounds magical. It really does. Like I'm, my brain is all like thinking and seeing what you're describing. <laughs> it's like, I wish that was everywhere mm-hmm. because that, that really is what it boils down to, to me is that we have gotten too big, too big in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Everything is so large. It's clunky. Um, it's complex. And, we need to simplify and reduce and, and, and get smaller and, and getting smaller is not necessarily a negative thing. And I do think some people feel this, this 
concern that if we reduce and get smaller, we're excluding people. Mm-hmm. And what I feel is the reality is that to get smaller is to customize and to customize is to really embody the full experience of that person. Because the more wider we get, the bigger we get, the more watered down we get, the more we try to streamline and a lot of people are left behind. And I I, I can't emphasize enough the importance of that whole person um, the, the the need for the entire person to be seen and heard and, and cared for. Oh, and, yeah. you know, <clears throat> with the fracturing part, you know, I think it has started with the family unit because mm-hmm. the uh, whole idea that kids need to be away from the parents in order to learn how to be a, a, an important member of society was like, where did that idea come from? Mm-hmm. Why did we start thinking that kids needed to be taken from the parents? And I, I recall as a new mom, I didn't participate in a lot of different activities because it was not child friendly. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I am a mother to an infant. I am not leaving him because you don't want kids around yeah. or I'm not doing this activity because you think that it's for the parents and the kids need to be left with complete strangers. I was like, I don't even like kids sitting on Santa Claus lap. So <laughs> why am I going to put, why am I going to put them in your care? Yeah. And I don't even know your last name. Yeah. So it's this idea that that's so normal for kids just to be handed off to somebody because they fall into the category of adult and they have a role at a particular institution and therefore we have to trust them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I feel like people probably do more research about what kind of car they're going to drive than, or even <laughs> what kind of, what, how they're going to decorate their nursery, yeah. you know, yeah. than they do about the people that they're going to allow. Cause I say allow, because to me, it's an honor to be in the presence of children and to be able to be part of your community. So, you know, I think it's something that really should be talked about more. Mm-hmm. So thank mm-hmm. you for allowing us to talk about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I I am so excited about what you said about bringing our worlds smaller. Um, because if we think back to community of the past, that's how it functioned, right? When communities got too large, they would break off right? And you would have sort of two sub-communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's tricky in this globalized culture that we have now um, to imagine what that looks like um, because we have access to everybody. Yeah. Well, almost everybody. Okay. Not everybody has internet access. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit yeah. of a, <laughs> I know what you a privilege mean, yeah. statement. Yeah. But, um, so the point I'm trying to make is that when we bring it smaller and we know safety, We know what it feels like to be held in community, real, true, deep community. Then it actually allows us to go bigger at the same time. So we can hold this small community of safety and this home base, right? This place that feels safe. And when we have that stability, it allows us to foray out into the larger communities knowing that we're okay, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think where we go wrong is thinking it's got to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. So my children have experience in their small little community, but also, you know, we do a lot of teaching about different things that are happening in the world, social justice issues, all of the things that, you know, we want um, to create change for in the greater global scale. Right. And so I think, we do ourselves a, an injustice by thinking that those two things have to be separate. Right. Yes. Or, and I should say, and that 
any issue that pops up on the global scale is an issue that everybody has to take 100% ownership of and spend all their time on that particular issue. And I don't mean that in any sort of way to be um, to dismiss the reality of what does happen in our society and does happen globally. But what I'm coming at it from a nervous system experience and expectation, Mm -hmm. it is impossible, humanly impossible for people to take on and, and, and shoulder the responsibility for every single issue that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And we, we actually do the society, ourselves, our families, a disservice if we believe that we can. Yep. Because to be, it's, it's like kind of the oxygen mask analogy. You know, you have to put your oxygen mask on first in order to then help somebody else. And if we're always being basically held down, held down, or expected to, or um, said that we're not a good person if we do not do A, B, C, or D, then it almost shuts people down to the point of not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that that there are absolutely important causes that should be front and center, and yet we have to get our family units and our individual selves solid and healthy and supported in order to really do our best work. Oh, I completely agree. Yep. I completely agree. Um, And on that nervous system level, right? We have Mm -hmm. to feel that safety um, in order to be able to help others. Because if you just reach out and it's always about the other, the other, the other, and how we're going to kind of solve these big intangible, in a lot of ways, intangible problems, um, then you're just operating from a place of anxiety all the time. Right. And from Mm -hmm. that place of should and how would I fix this problem instead of a more centered and grounded place when we have our neurological balance um, and we can choose how we're going to show up for those things and also choose how we can show up in ways that fit within our own boundaries. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, And I go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So when we don't have that, right, and we're just always looking to that large, world and the large problems, then we feel very helpless. Whereas when we have experience of how we keep our world small and how we choose based on our values, then we can meet the world in ways that we can actually affect change, right? Where it's not just spreading our energy super thin across 50,000 different options, where it's like, actually, I know who I am. I know what I value and I know how I can make change in this world. And this is how I'm choosing to do it. So it gives you so much clarity and like that path forward when you have a solidity in your neurological health, your mental health, your emotional stability, and a community that's willing to support you in, in like-minded causes. Mm-hmm, for sure. And, and again, it goes back to, like you said, that sort of like-minded part, you know, I, when I was a, a mom in the early days, the whole idea of finding your tribe was so prevalent mm-hmm. and I appreciated it, but there was a part of me that also just kind of, it felt a little, I don't know how to describe it, like a little off, I guess Mm -hmm. is the best way, Mm -hmm. because what was happening, at least I felt was that this whole idea of finding your tribe to some degree was finding only certain people and forgetting about the rest. And so what I think can happen is we can become tribal, Mm -hmm. which is not the goal. Mm -hmm. And So finding your tribe, if you think of it in terms of that common goal and those people who can support each other healthy 
in healthy ways and are there for the joys and the, and the sadness. Um, and they have that common kind of bond and goal. Then that to me is what is meant by sort of that tribe, finding that tribe. And it also means that those tribes are healthy enough to interact with others as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I saw, I read, I don't don't remember where I heard it. It's probably on a podcast somewhere, but this idea of compassion going too far, Mm -hmm. Um, narcissistic compassion. I feel like it's the (laughs) word that they use and I'm like, I've never heard that before, but you know, it's something I have yet to really dive deeply into, but it just popped up as we're speaking. And so part of uh, my interpretation of that is that someone who's so focused on the other and feeling like they need to show compassion and be compassionate is almost a, it, it can be taken too far to the extreme, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and then, and then you're, you're almost becoming not compassionate because you feel like you're doing so much for something else that you're forgetting that there's other things out there. Yeah. Well, and also it tips over into some cognitive dissonances, right? Mm. Um, like co- those cognitive distortions where you're like mind reading what other people want or need um, because you think that that's how the problem should be solved instead of, you know, participating in a community um, where you're getting feedback right? You're getting feedback all the time from the community mm-hmm. um, about what's helpful, what's not helpful, asking the questions, being willing to listen, opening yourself up to being wrong, right? Oh, like yeah. that, that's huge. And um, yeah, when you talk about finding your tribe, that doesn't sit right with me either because it feels too narrow in terms of who you let in and who you don't let in. Right, right. Um, you have to share common values with your community, um, but not all of them. Right. Like you have to share some of your core values and the things that you, you know, spend a good deal of your time on. But the beauty of communities is that you learn about other things or different values and you can watch how somebody is proceeding with many similar values as you and also these other ones that aren't in alignment with you. And that's okay too. Right. Instead of wanting us to align in every possible way, what you need to have is a community that aligns in enough ways that you feel that feeling of safety being seen and being held within the community, but then enough diversity that you're allowing yourself to learn and, and, be in reciprocity, right? Like there's some giving and there's some taking and there's some giving and there's some taking in a community. Um, and finding your tribe to me denotes like, oh, well, we're all like-minded and we just all want the same thing and we just all go forth together. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not real. Mm-mm. Like that's not how humans are because nobody aligns 100% on all of the things. Mm-mm. And um, there again, back to that social emotional learning is like, okay, well, how do we show up at those times where we have dissonance? How do we create space for that um, and those conversations that feel uncomfortable to us because we have zero experience in them, right? Having come out of a culture that, you know, shuts down emotional processing, how do we create those spaces in our communities to do that and to show up for each other and to discuss differing values without making it mean something about us or our relationship or our place in the community? Gosh, yes. Well, and as you were speaking about the tribe, it makes me think about the equivalence of the peer orientation. So if you're, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like the adult version of peer orientation, you feel like you're safe because you believe that everybody's kind of thinking the same way, Mm -hmm. you know? So it, it, and that's kind of that peer orientation culture is that I'm going to look like these people, talk like these people, act like these people. um, And therefore we're all the same. And therefore we are stronger because we're all the same. Mm -hmm. 
So why don't you tell us a little bit more about your podcast and also your Instagram page and the and the work that you're doing in the world outside of the forest. Sure. Um, so the forest school is a part of what we do. But as I said, that's only three days a week. Um, outside of that, we spend a lot of time on our farm making food and uh, raising chickens, growing eggs, um, growing meat, vegetables, etc. Um, but my work in the world and with family yields is really focused on trying to pull together all these different threads that I feel are so connected. Um, and I didn't see when I was a young mom, um, and choosing about my own kids schooling, I didn't see anybody out there who was pulling them together. Mm. So the things that come together for me on a daily basis are, um, the inner work, right? Just looking at myself and, and the way that I meet the world, um, and trying to improve myself and become, you know, more holy myself. Um, alongside that would be gentle or mindful parenting. And alongside that would be homeschooling. And so those three things to me are interwoven in terms of the way in which uh, we think about them or we think about humans within our systems. Um, and so I like to pull the thread between the three. Um, and sometimes it pulls more towards education and sometimes more towards inner work and sometimes more towards parenting. Um, but I find that all three of those things are just kind of a soup of humanity mm -hmm. for me. And I like <laughs> to kind of dig around in there. Um, so my podcast is called Family Yields. And on it, I generally try to tackle an issue that's come up for me. Um, and I look at it specifically through the lens of permaculture. Um, and this is something that I haven't talked about much on here, and I don't really talk about it too much on Instagram. It's more in my podcast where I really do the deep dive into permaculture thinking. Um, and so for this, I have to do a little bit of back teaching about what permaculture is for those uh, people who are new to the idea. Um, permaculture actually started in the 1970s as a way to re-envision agriculture. Or like, how can we grow food in a sustainable way that honors the land and the people and um, the system? So it's based in systems thinking, um, uses the patterns of nature. So if we look at the way a forest works or um, the way a natural system works, how can we use those things to inform the way that we are growing our food so that we can become part of the system instead of imposing our values onto the system? Mm. So based on our chat so far, you can see how the themes that we've talked about in terms of education really weave in to permaculture. Um, so there's a kind of a new branch of permaculture um, that's called social permaculture, which is using natural systems of integration to inform the ways in which we exist as social beings, right? How can we create our societies or our communities based on natural systems and sort of these principles that exist? So every podcast I do, I try to tie in what I'm talking about to the, the 12 permaculture principles. Um, and I love it. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like my way to just kind of ground myself in the theory, bringing something from the real world and how I would handle that into the permaculture theory. And I kind of break it down and bring in the permaculture principles that would support it. Um, so that's my podcast. And then on Instagram, I just do a lot of weaving of things. So on my um, on my page, I put up some of my own thinking, like little memes, things to get us thinking about our parenting, homeschooling and inner work journeys. Um, and then in my stories, I like to share other people's work. So every day I like to curate, as I call it, other people's work 
um, and put it in there kind of on a theme and kind of leading you through um, my thought process for the day because I find it sets my intention for the day and just gets me going. Um, so, yeah, so outside of all that, um, I do coach um, clients. So people who are interested in coaching on any of those three facets, right, whether it be parenting, homeschooling, inner work, or the intersection of any of them. Um, it's really, my coaching practice is really about getting down to our authentic selves, living true to our values and making choices from a place of our inner knowing. Um, so that's kind of the theme there. Um, I have a couple of offerings online, like, uh, I have, um, a couple of courses. So one called Should I Homeschool? Um, that was the one that I used to do live, but people wanted it kind of all year round. Um, and so it's a five-day class that you can take and it just leads you through getting to a point of clarity about whether or not you should be homeschooling your child. Um, and then I have another course called the Homeschooling Empowerment Course, uh, which takes people who are currently in a very school mindset um, and kind of shows them the path forward to get from where they are to homeschooling their child. So it's kind of a bridge program um, for families who are just starting out. Um, and then I have a Motivate Your Homeschooler Toolkit, which is like if you're experiencing some difficulty with homeschooling your child, um, what kind of strategies? I have five strategies in there. Uh, what strategies can you employ to help your child um, and to support them? And so, you know, here's the clincher is that the strategies really are about giving the child the chance to speak up and bring more mm -hmm. of themselves to the environment um, and asking those questions of like, do I really need to teach this? And how am I teaching it? And how can I meet the child where they are? Um, so the focus of all my programs is like meeting a person where they are. And then how do we move the needle forward from there? Yeah, that's so wonderful. Oh my goodness. So the whole idea of the empowerment piece, because we, when we come to any homeschool experience from that school mindset or what I call the school lens, we forget that it's not powering mm -hmm. over that's going to get the best outcome. It's being a role model. It's showing how we interact in the world and it's talking out loud. It's expressing ourselves. Yeah so that our kids can see. And so those, all those pieces just really empower not only the children, but the parents too. And, you know, the three themes that you have in your work, I've found over and over and over again with the people that I work with and the things that I've seen over the last, you know, 10 or so years, especially in the homeschool world is that so many people that come to homeschooling either do it because they've, they've, they felt a need and they saw something in their children that, that needed a little bit more than what the school could offer um, and then the parenting stuff shifted, mm -hmm. yep. right? Like all of a sudden they were like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. <laughs> we might need to ask some questions about how we've been doing things up to That's this right. point. And now, you know, so it's interesting how sometimes the kids lead those parent lead parents to, well, I think, I think the majority of kids lead parents who are willing and open and curious to explore themselves more and do that inner work and kind of piece together how they got to yeah. where they are. So I love that you put all those three together in like a systems thinking yes, way. Yes, yes. And um, for me, it's really hard to tease them apart. And so some people come to my work and they're just like, well, what are you about? You know, because <laughs> there's this, this and this, I don't really understand. Um, but to me, it's about looking at, again, that whole person, right? And trying to not mm -hmm. compartmentalize ourselves into, you know, an academic learner versus an emotional learner. Um, and the whole point of that empowerment course was just to try to help people um, take a look at the schooling mindset 
right? That you're coming to homeschooling yeah. with and, and try to question and put down the pieces of that, that maybe aren't going to serve you going forward. Um, but it's also a matter of process, right? So where you start with homeschooling, right? Cause when I first started, I sat my kids down at my kitchen table and I'm like, Oh, we're going to do these worksheets. <laughs> right. Cause that's what I knew. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, as a classroom mm -hmm. teacher and boy, have we come a long way from there. And so I take mm -hmm. people through that process, right? And and I think too, what's important is giving people the opportunity and the validation to say your homeschool is going to look different. It's going to look like your family's sure. homeschool, um, because there's a lot of people out there that say, you know, if you're unschooler, it has to look this way, and if you're doing Charlotte Mason, it has to look this way. And giving people permission to invent their own thing and to be. Um, the curators of their own life and their own family's education and the way that going forward feels healthy to them um, is really right. important. Well, it's like I said, that's the beauty of doing it is we get to customize, right. you know, I don't want to turn homeschooling into another system that has to be followed in a certain way because then you're going to, you're going to run into the same problems that you, you know, tried to it's avoid and, and the reason that you left. But that's so, a lot of mindset um, work, right? Like to get to that place is a lot of mindset and a lot of looking at the ways that you're choosing to do things. And that can be really tricky. Yeah, it can be. It, yeah. It's a lot of people. <laughs> I, I can speak for myself. I know that there were times where I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. It's just too, I don't, I don't need to change. <laughs> we all do that. We all do that because, it, you know, that's our brain patterning though. Like that's how we stay alive as a species, right? We figure out, oh, mm -hmm. this was um, something that was dangerous. Therefore, that pattern is now in my brain. I need to do it this way to keep safe. So we hold mm -hmm. on to these things to keep ourselves safe. So, you know, it's bigger than us. It's part of our genetics. It <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, is yep. it ever. Well, and so as we kind of near a wrap up, is there... Are there any parting words or things that you would like to leave people with that maybe we didn't cover or just sort of as a, a wrap up to what we have covered? Sure. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, and I will say that I just want to encourage people with words of patience. You know, if I think back to where I was 12 years ago with my kids to where I am now, um, it's a world different. My life looks very different than it did. Um, and I got here by taking one step at a time. Yeah. Oftentimes we'll look at, oh, you know, so-and-so is doing this, this, and this, and I wish I was doing that. Um, we have to have patience with our own process. We have to have patience with the amount of time it takes to listen um, and observe what's happening in our life in order to change those deeply embedded brain patterns that we have. Um, so if you are, you know, anywhere, anywhere on the journey, um, just honor where you're at. And the fact that you're here and listening to this podcast means you're taking steps forward towards something different. And sometimes we don't give ourselves credit enough for the journey that we're on because we're so busy looking at everybody else's. So I would just encourage people to honor yourself in this moment to look at the ways that you are changing and evolving and improving the situation for yourself and your family, um, because that's really important. Um, and that change doesn't happen on our timeline, right? It doesn't mm. happen at the pace <laughs> that we, our brain says it should happen, right? Um, I've set many, many goals uh, in my lifetime uh, that have, you know, we're supposed to be one-year goals that have taken seven, eight, 10 years. Um, yeah. And so opening ourselves to possibility and the fact that um, the timeline might not look like how we think it should be, uh, but that we're on the right path. 
Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation provided you with some insights and ideas on living and learning with our children, and also considerations for building an intentional community. If you are getting enjoyment out of these conversations, it would be ever so helpful if you would leave a rating and or a review. Reviews and ratings allow others to find the podcast and connect people to information, ideas, and each other around the topics of mindful parenting and educational autonomy. I think we can all agree that the physical community is vital, but the virtual community can certainly provide comfort and support in the meantime. Thank you for being here. As always, stay curious, stay connected, and stay aware. Until next time.